Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by Amanda Earle's editorial service. With over 20 years of experience as a writer, editor, and publisher, Earle will help you create unique and effective poetry, prose, visual poetry, and hybrid work through a collaborative process of connection, exploration, and whimsy. Earl is managing editor of Bywords.ca, publisher of Angel House Press, and a poet herself. Her latest book, Beast Body Epic, is a collection of long poems about her near-death health crisis. Writer and communications professor Rob Thomas says, I think every writer should have a sticker above their laptop screen that reads, But what would Amanda Earl do? Few can balance playful experimentation with a keen editor's eye as deftly as she. Poet Manahil Bandakwala says, Amanda Earl offered incredibly valuable feedback on some of my earliest poems. As a new poet, I felt she approached my work with sensitivity and care. For more information, visit amandaearl.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Otter Country, a captivating memoir by Miriam Darlington that pursues one of nature's most endearing and fascinating creatures, the otter. Following Darlington over the course of a year, this memoir takes readers on a winding expedition from Devon, England to the wilds of Scotland and Wales, revealing the scientific, environmental, and cultural importance of the otter and the places it calls home. In the words of Mark Beckoff, Otter Country is a must-read for anyone who wants to know more about these fascinating and mysterious animals with whom we share our magnificent planet. Otter Country is out on February 20th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I have to say that 2024, looking across the people scheduled to come on the show from beginning to end, I can't think of a year I was more excited for as a whole than this one. Now, granted, conversations that haven't yet happened that are still living dynamically and fabulously in my imagination don't always materialize the way one hopes they will. But so far with Matias and Alvaro and now Diana, it feels like 2024 is already surpassing my high hopes for it. Today's conversation touches on so many things, from one's work outside of language and its effect on language, to writing into family silences, from ghosts and hauntings and doubles, to writing with the non-human, to Diana's many ways of engaging with what she calls radical eulogy. As part of all that, we find ourselves also talking about the process of making a book and how this book began as a 200-page manuscript and ended up a book half that size. For the bonus audio archive, Diana talks further about this and also shares some of the image-shaped texts, the text shaped like bodies that didn't make the final book, and thus now, in her words, haunted from an elsewhere. This being the first contribution to the bonus audio in 2024, I wanted to mention the highlight contributions from last year. 
there's the 40-minute-long epic call-and-response of readings between Sophia Samatar and Kate Sambrino. There's Banu Kapil's late-night reading in hushed tones of everyone from Annie Ernaux to Yunsong Kim to passages from her own notebook. There's Lydia Davis reading her translation of Peter Bischel. There's Naomi Klein reading a letter between the fake Philip Roth and the real Philip Roth in Operation Shylock. There's Roger Reeves reading Hassan Kanafani and Isabella Hamad reading a letter from the Palestinian political prisoner Walid Daka. There's Christina Sharp reading Kinesia Lubrin, Dion Brand, and Victoria Adukwe Bully. There's Melanie Ray Tone's Craft Talk, The Ethics of Perception. And definitely the most outside-the-box contribution by Johanna Hedva, created just for us while they were on book tour, recording their moans and groans and screams and written texts city to city as they traveled, and then mixing and layering them with the universe's own voices, the sonifications of a black hole and of the helix nebula, raw audio of the sun, a field recording of the Aurora Borealis, an experience only Hedva could have created, which they called the saddest thing of all is when a lone astronaut falls in her suit. Who is there to help her up? This only scratches the surface of last year's contributions, let alone all the previous years, and access to the bonus audio archive is only one of many potential things to choose from if you join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter, you can check out all that every supporter receives and the various things you can choose from at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with none other than Diana Coy Wynn. morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, poet and multimedia artist Diana Coy Wynn, received a BA in English and Communication Studies from UCLA, followed by an MFA from Columbia and a PhD in Creative Writing from the University of Denver. Her first book, published while she was still pursuing her doctorate, Ghost of, won the Omnidon Open Poetry Book Contest selected by Terence Hayes. In his citation as judge, Hayes says, Sometimes it is as if these poems address the reflection of a ghost in a mirror. Other times the poems here look off to a father's rooftop in Saigon. Or they look deeply into the interiors of family, a brother's silhouette in the doorway. These poems mean to make a song of emptiness, the spaces we house. This collection is steeped in the poetics of exile and elegy. These poems sing to and for the ghosts of identity, 
history, and culture. They sing like a ghost who looks from the window or waits by the door. Ghost of is unforgettable. Lucy Brock Broido adds, Diana Coywin's Ghost of is nothing short of an extraordinary debut. At its center is the haunting disappearance of a brother gone by suicide. These poems are uncanny renderings of an invisibility made visible by the sheer will of candor, bemused forms, agility of lexicon, and a voice almost noiselessly extravagant. What she gives us, she takes away. Nearly impossible transformations transform. Something keeps not happening, she writes, and then she causes it to happen in a language of grief, bold and often colder than most daring exquisite acts. Nothing here is ever entirely complete. Ghost of mourning, ghost of yearning, ghost of the kiln unfilled with the probable impossibility of an afterlife. It is as if a medieval scholar were transcribing an ancient Latin manuscript. Pieces of script are missing, illegible, annulled by time. Wynne's voice is both wraith-like and astonishingly frontal. This is one of the most gifted first books I've read. And the world heartily agreed. Ghost of was a finalist for the National Book Award and the LA Times Book Prize and was winner of the Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the Colorado Book Award. Diana Coy Wynn has taught in many places, from the Lighthouse Writers Workshop to the Juniper Summer Writing Institute, and currently teaches in the Randolph College Low Residency MFA and at the University of Pittsburgh. She has garnered a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. Her video work has been exhibited at the Miller Institute for Contemporary Art. She's a Kundiman Fellow, and she's a member of the Vietnamese Artists Collective, She Who Has No Masters, a collective of women and non-binary writers of the Vietnamese diaspora who engage in collaborative, polyvocal, and hybrid poetic works that enact a politics of connection across diasporic boundaries, which also includes Pass Between the Covers guests, Dao Strom, and Vicky Now. Diana Khoi Nguyen is here to talk about her much-anticipated second poetry collection, Root Fractures. Victoria Chang says of this book, in Diana Khoi Nguyen's beautiful and heartbreaking book, Root Fractures, the leaping imagistic declarative sentence becomes fractured and unreliable as a way to parse and thread memories and feelings. Stacked to the sky, the declaratives become tenuous and subjunctive, leaning under the weight of family, history, and trauma from displacement and a brother's suicide. And Laylee Long Soldier adds, In root fractures, we come face to face with a dark gravitational pull, the great black hole of war. Through the Vietnamese-American experience, Diana Khoi Nguyen languages a feeling many of us can relate to, so often buried, silent and deep, within land, blood, bone, into molecular DNA. Yet because a black hole deceptively 
is not empty space when tunnels through memories, photographs, family stories, death, grief, belonging and separation, motherland and mother tongue, relocation and empire, the points of entry and departure in those holes left in her siblings, parents, grandparents, and skyward to generations before. A whole is a whole, but none of them are the same, Wynne writes. Yet she reminds us there is a way out. As they illuminate what once was broken, each of these poems glimmers and pulses along a pathway out, not for one person alone, but as enduring starlight for generations to come. Welcome to Between the Covers, Diana Coywin. Thank you, David. What a wonderful introduction and just to hear the words of other poets I admire and, and read and, and teach. And it's also lovely to hear Lucy's voice. You know, we shared the same birthday. You and Lucy did? Yeah, Lucy and I, um, as I think of her, yeah, every every year, of course. So this year in particular, for some reason, contains several guests where we've been anticipating the conversation for a particularly long time, but probably none longer than you and me. I went back to our email archives, and you reached out in March of 2018, a month before your debut was published. The show had been recommended to you by poet and critic Diana Artirian, and you mentioned that you were using my conversation with Tayimba Jess in a class where you were teaching his book, Olio. And I was very interested in pursuing a conversation with you, but at that point, the show was in person only, and the two times you could have been in Portland, I couldn't do. So we agreed to look together toward a conversation about a future book. And between then and now, your book skyrockets in the national poetry consciousness. And now, flash forward six years, and we're finally here. As part of a way of marking that time, it feels important, I think, to orient readers to the family situation you portray in your first book, since Root Fractures extends and extends from that exploration. And and to spare you from reiterating yet another time the fundamental circumstances of Ghost of, for those who haven't read it, two years before your brother's suicide, your brother quietly removes all the family photos on the walls of your house, cuts himself out of the pictures, and replaces the photos back in the frame without his image. Nobody in your family says anything to him about it, and remarkably, the pictures stay up for several years like this, and then for several years more after his death, silently there. And eventually, you ask your sister to take them out of the frames, make copies for you, and these brother-absented photos become the material or the ground from which the poems of your first book arise. Sometimes your poems fill the empty space of your brother's silhouette and are constrained by that form. Sometimes the text is outside the empty space, seemingly creating the space or holding it up. So it's not surprising that Terence Hayes would think of your book alongside Tyam Bajess and Douglas Kearney's work to other people who've been on the show um, and conversations that I think would be good compliments to ours because this engagement with the visual and with the visuality of text is part of their and your contemplation of identity and self 
and other and peoplehood. And this is just a long preface and orientation to me giving the first question over to another, Victoria Chang, who who you asked a question to when, when she was on the show. Hi, Diana. This is Victoria Chang, and I'm so excited to be able to ask you a question about your new book, Root Fractures. So our culture can be very book-focused, meaning our spilling and capacious art is contained in a book form by forces beyond us as artists. And I was thinking about your work in relation to my work because I feel like my work just from book to book is sort of one long conversation um, kind of circling around similar and uh, themes and obsessions. And once I likened it to like a paintbrush that you scrape across books, meaning that it just kind of keeps going and um, it might take a different shape, form or color, but it's sort of still the same thread. Um, I feel like your second book is also a continuation of your first more as a part of versus separate from. And I really admired that about your second book. And I wondered what your thoughts are on this. And I would love to hear about your experiences working on a second book in general as well. Oh, it's so lovely to hear Victoria's voice and to receive that that question. But also, I can't go over that image of that paintbrush, right, across books and how, of course, the materials that comprise each book are slightly different. And so the quality of the the same paint, right, if it is the same paint, is still going to be different. And also time ages paint differently. We, well, the question wasn't for me to just analyze that image that I'm so taken with. So I understand the question to extend for me to discuss continuation of threads, right? From one piece to another. As I said, thread, I was thinking about the word tendril. And I think in order to talk about this, I had to talk about process. And so I never set about writing a book ever. I'm always just trying to figure out like what's in me and what's there. And what's possible, which is actually really hard. Writing is hard. I think people people know this. And so I create these conditions, which I've been doing for at least the last eight, eight to 10 years, where I have concentrated periods of time where I write every day alongside somebody else over email correspondence. It began originally as like a 30-day poem a day, right? Like the grind, except it was my kind of my version. And then... I split it up to be two 15-day periods, and that's what I've been doing. Just that's what's been feasible for me. And of course, what results then is you kind of exhaust your usual, I don't know, poetic tricks on a page. Or at least I do. When I say you, I mean me. And and that usually happens in the first three days, right? It's like the dregs from the last. <laughs> The last time I was like yeah. writing something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you clear that out and then you hit rock bottom where you feel like you can't make anything that's feels like exciting to one, to me. Right. I feel like I can't make anything. And actually I love that part. I hate it. But I love it. I hate it because it feels terrible. And I have this terrible you know, existential crisis. My therapist is always prepared, <laughs> but what I love about it is that's when you really become so porous. When I become so porous, like a sponge, uh, 
what's that uh, Kafka quote? A cage goes in search of a bird. Is 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 it? A, I think it's a it's cage. a cage. A yeah, cage? a cage yeah. goes in search of a bird. Yeah. So I feel like that, except like I don't want to cage any birds, but just like the metaphor where I'm just like the sponge, like just looking for all the other microbes to inhabit my being. Yeah. Because I just like I need to. I need something. I just need material. And so during those periods, it's like I'm hypersensitive, hyper aware, constantly foraging, receiving, taking notes. And then when I like sit down to write finally that day, not all the time, but oftentimes something remarkable happens where I go, oh, what is that? <laughs> um, and then I do that again until I'm done, until the 15 days are done. And then I don't think about it. It's a very like, how do I protect myself and the work, myself from the work and vice versa? And then maybe like six months later or three months later, there's some amount of time where I forgot that I did it. Then I'll go back and I'll look and then I'll see like, what was the thread? What was there? What is still interesting to me? Like that it's like exciting my neurons. And I do that year after year, David, right? Like, mm. and then I, I slowly began to accrete or it's not even like I've I don't even have a file management system. It's just like, I know my brain, like those ones, those pieces. And then a certain number of years pass. And then I go, maybe I should look at all of them. And what is it? So it's, I think it's more akin to like um, taking a geological sampling of earth over time. I do that and I see what's there. And then I ask myself these important questions like, is this a gathering that could be a collection? So it's less like I was trying to write a book about this or I was trying to pick up pick up threads of this. I can't avoid myself ever. So I'm more interested in like what was there in the conscious and unconscious and what might it assemble into. And so of course threads are gonna continue, but I'm not the same that I was when I first wrote you in 2018. Right. My relationship to family, to grief, to these photographs, my contemplations about where my family has come from and where I come from, it's not the same. And so the work that was produced, I was like, oh, this is, it's a different project. But yeah, for sure, like the themes carry and continue, but like a person that's still familiar, there's still so much you still, like, I still didn't know. Well, I want to ask you about the ways in which you're not the same in relationship to art making around this charged material, because it's clear that you're not the same to me. I've watched many videos of you as a guest speaker or a guest lecturer in various classroom settings over a long number of years, and you almost always, unprompted, invite people to ask you anything, to not feel like talking about anything in your work is taboo. And then you often share details yourself, some that appear in the poems uh, and some that don't, but that I think add some texture and context to them. We already know, given the fact that the pictures stay up both before the suicide and after without being spoken of, that there was an intense atmosphere of silence. You share that your parents went back to work the day after your brother's body was found. You've shared that among your many feelings about your brother's death, you felt relief, relief that he didn't harm someone else in addition to himself, that your parents weren't eating the food in the fridge for fear 
that he had poisoned the food, that prior to Gustav coming out, when your mother would read individual poems as they were published, she threatened to sue you if you continued writing about the family. And you say all of this and the invitation to ask you anything and the details you offer in this really remarkably calm and measured voice, which made me wonder when I was watching these videos if this were simply your temperament, one that was different than your family, to go into the silences and excavate them and to do this with a certain amount of equanimity, or whether this was something hard-won and achieved through practice and time and will. But then you shared in one conversation the detail that when your father picked you up the day after your brother's suicide, that he was wearing your brother's hat and he had a second, a second hat from him that he wanted to offer you. And you report in an interview, recognizing that you didn't want to be anywhere near his things, that you didn't want to engage with his clothes, that you didn't cry at the funeral, that you kept your distance for years from these photos on the walls, that they had sort of a radioactive presence that you were avoiding, that the silence wasn't just around you, but within you, and one you couldn't yet breach or broach at one point. But now... With both books, you've done so in, in an incredibly powerful way. And I think other art makers writing about and into traumatic familial events would be curious, as I am, maybe to hear about how that journey looked from not being able to engage at all to a, a real avoidance, which feels very different than this process that you do in the 15-day periods which feels motivated by a certain curiosity about what's inside of your psyche um, to, to start from this place of, of not engage of willfully not engaging to this really intense and continual and what feels like a deepening engagement over the last seven or eight years. What does this practice look like emotionally artistic or artistically that brought you from the place when your dad picks you up to now. Thank you for that, David. I'm really floored by the amount of time that you've spent listening and watching. I feel really moved actually. And I'm, I think in order to talk about that moment, my father picking me up from the airport when I flew in for the funeral, I think I have to talk about the years before that too. I think that's really important. Um, I left home the on my birthday, the day I turned 18, when I was legally able to do so. And it was like in my teens, I had made this vow to myself. Like it was really, there were really oppressive, abusive, violent conditions. And I, I knew that I could either take my own life. This is something I really wrestled with in my teens. I could take my own life or I could just bear through it and then have the life I wanted as soon as I legally could. And I like, couldn't figure out how to get emancipated. So that was just how I did that. And but I did. I, li I lived a great life. I went to college. I supported myself. And my parents tried to reach out a couple years in um, saying that they were wrong, which was huge for them. You know, and then it's been kind of rocky ever since. And it still is even to this day, actually, often. But I've made this conscious decision where I really don't want to erase them from my life. Right. 
And yet I still can't reconcile some of the things that happened because, um, and I, I will get to the point about my seeing my father in the car, but like, I remember all these events. My brother remembered all those events and he took his life. My mother cannot recall them, even though she was uh, a primary agent in them. My father never talks about them. And my sister doesn't not believe me, but she also doesn't remember anything, actually. So I feel like I'm the li only living person with, infall with infallible memory, right? Like, <laughs> who remembers it? And that's that's hard. So there was so much silencing about so many things, and I've really internalized that. And actually, throughout my schooling, throughout my MFA, undergraduate, I wrote poems about bad stepmothers, you know, <laughs> like Eastern folktale variants, because those really spoke to me. I really understood what those like children were feeling. And it really wasn't until my brother's death that really like forced me to just be like, to confront what I'd been ignoring, what I was kind of fleeing from, what I was avoiding, but I couldn't do it right away, David. Right. So like went home for the funeral, wasn't sure if I was going to do that actually. My parents actually kind of told me like, you don't need to, you know, which was weird, but that's maybe part of the same mindset of like, well, what an inconvenience it would be for you to, to disrupt your life. And the same mindset of like, well, they, they go to work afterwards, you know, um, they only knew how to continue with that routine. And because I had, had, I was so intimately familiar with suicidal ideation that to know that my brother did it was painful on so many accounts, like I knew what it was be like to be in the precipice of that state of mind, except I didn't cross over. He crossed over. And I don't think I could have, uh, I don't think I was even aware of it then, but I knew as soon as my father wanted me to have my brother's beanie, I was like, I don't want to touch that. As if it was contagious, like the suicide of the brother, as if I might get sucked right back into that place. And there's this thing where like, you know, sometimes for some folks, when they go back home, even though they're 40 years old, they go back home. It's like you're a 12 year old child in that house again. Everybody falls back in line into their like, their ranking within the house. And it's kind of like that for me too. You know, I've become like that, you know, grumpy eldest daughter. I didn't have language, David. I didn't have language for what was going on but I was watching everything. You know, I remember how one aunt scolded me the whole week. And I understood that she was scolding me for leaving my family for all those years. And that there was this implied notion of like, it was my fault that my sister found my brother because it should have been me. I should have been there. Not even that like, oh, if I was there, this wouldn't have happened, but I should have been there. So my sister didn't have to deal with this. You know, so there was a lot of that, which is like, how do you deal with the weight of all of that crap, right? Everybody's like, everybody has their their feelings and their grief and they're maybe acting out in ways that aren't necessarily kind to others. And so I just was receiving, I was just witnessing. And, there, and this is related to like um, the equanimity, I think was that the word you, you, mm -hmm. you used? Um, it helps me if I just, it's as if like I can just make my heart rate calm which means then I have to like really scuttle away my emotional self. Like I'm just going to be present to witness and I'll deal with what I feel later because I'm not really sure what I feel. Um, so I was gathering during that period. Um, and I gathered for a long time after that period. 
I think when I sat down to write within that first year, I couldn't even directly write about my brother, actually. But the biggest shift was now I wasn't writing about European folktale variants. And I was actually looking at my familial history. I had to confront my own feelings with my brother, right? It's like um, it's like I'm circling the proximity of the wound. It's like I'm circling the wound. But I can't get too close because I'm so scared I'm going to fall in and I won't come back out. Right? As if, like, I'm going to die too. It re I really felt like there was, like, the grief, but then there was also, like, all the baggage of all the reasons why I left that house because I was scared it was going to kill me. And I was still scared it was going to kill me to be so close to all of that. So I didn't know how to have language for that. And I, I really like to share this, which I think was really so important to my practice now. But it was like, you know, after that first death anniversary and asking my sister if she wouldn't mind scanning those pictures for me because like I, I didn't want them to have power over us anymore to haunt us, right? But also, David, like I had to confront those pictures. I hadn't looked at them. Like they don't have eyes in the picture. <laughs> but I mean, I guess the people have eyes, but like I had to like look at it. It's like looking at the awful event. Everybody always turns away. We avert our eyes. But I was like, I cannot avert my eyes. And there's something really calming, actually, about, you know, when you're like, um, when you scan a digital photo, for some reason, when you open up the PDF, it's like a ginormous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, I don't know why this happens. I, I don't know that. I don't know what the phenomenon is. But it's like not to scale to your to your screen. And it's like somehow zoomed in a thousand percent. So all you see are like pixels of one area. That was great. Because like, then I didn't have to behold the whole wound. It was just so disorienting that it was kind of a relief and I could then slowly like zoom back out. In the act of doing that, I was able to be curious, like, oh, what is this new map? You know, like, what is this picture? Or what am I seeing now? Versus like, oh shit, I'm gonna like now look at this hole in the picture. It wasn't that, it was just more of like, oh, okay, it's an artifact. It's an object that now I can handle versus this emotional reminder of like all of our, all of our stuff all the familial stuff. And so it was that mixture, right? Like I, I have this, like I'm, I'm moving between my emotional self and my curious self, which is like kind of a great place to be, I think, because I feel safe enough to engage. I didn't write anything. You know, I just, I was like, okay, I think I was like, I just want to carry these around with me because I don't know what I have to say about them. So I did, I had them in my pocket, you know, and I was living in Colorado. I walked the dog every day. And it's one of those things where you're like, you know, when you're a kid, you just do stuff, but you don't know why. Same thing. You know, like the dog was pooping over there by the daffodils. So I was like, okay, I'm going to throw this over a dandelion. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, ooh, I like the way that looks. I'm going to take a picture of that. I don't know. And I did that. I did that for all spring. But now I understand when I look at it, I'm like, oh, that was my nonverbal engagement mm -hmm. with the archive. And it was my way too of like, filling in the void with like, you know, after winter thaws, like spring, spring comes up. It makes so much sense. It was actually really nourishing to have green and flowers coming up through that space. And I think that really changed the temperature in terms of like my fear to the archive that then like the next time when I sat down to write, I, pull, I just, you know, dropped it into my, my Word document. And I was like, hi guys, you know? Yeah, I mean, you really, it's like you have to like, uh, denature, <laughs> denature the spooky parts in order to handle it. Yeah. Like, 
I just thinking about how like you have to let the cake cool on the baking rack completely before you can frost it. Because if you if you rush it, it's just going to slip on off. It's going to melt. What a mess. Wow. What a weird metaphor, Diane. So I could handle it. And I was curious, but I was also aware too now a little bit of how I felt, right? Which is like, I acknowledged that I had fear. I was able to confront that fear through these physical acts, these nonverbal acts. And, and this is actually really important. Um, I had a mission. My mission was to engage further with the photographs so that I could share it with my sister and we could just not be scared or avoidant of this thing that we weren't talking about. God forbid, we couldn't have talked about it with our parents. But at least between my sister and I, we could. You know, there's like a different kind of a, I think, relational pact between siblings, especially siblings who played together, who survived the same abuse together, whether or not my sister can remember. And so the first thing I thought was, well, okay, an impulse would be to fill in the hole. And I did that with a text box. And I like to talk about this moment as a keyhole because only, you know, some people ask, like, I didn't write a poem and then put and paste that in. I was like writing within the boundaries of where my brother cut, which is very different from writing and then pouring something in. It's like, I'm now pouring myself into the mold that my brother made. And there's something extremely intimate about doing that within the photograph. And my mind met that task with surprising language to me. And it revealed to me what I probably have been holding in my body for that one plus years. And of course, those body, those body holes are, are small. So like, like once those floodgates are open, like I needed to keep pouring. So I just started writing on top of the photograph and so and so on. And so folks will understand that from, from the triptychs and the ghost and ghost of. I feel like I don't know if I'm answering all of the points that you raise, but I'd like to kind of carry that in terms of the evolution to where this is here. And I will talk about the invitation that I do for others. Actually, I'll talk about that right now, which is I did all this for me and my sister, really. And kind of on a lark, I realized one summer living in San Antonio that I had a lot of these poems, a lot of these dead brother poems. And I was like, is this a book? And then I didn't like that because I was like, no, it's like, I was like, I can't, I can't share this with anybody. You know, like it's our pictures. It's not even like the speaker. I mean, yeah, but like, that's my mom. So I was like, whatever, it's fine. Like I was like, all my friends, I know so many people, like it took them 10 years to have a book, whatever. I'm not sending it anywhere. Let's just, let's just gather and see, you know? Um, and I did. And I did decide ultimately to submit it thinking it would take a really long time to get picked up because I thought the book was really weird, you know? But in order to make that decision, it wasn't because I wanted a book, if that makes sense. It's like, if I'm going to make this deeply personal thing with photographic evidence of who we were back then and who I am now more recently, there's such a one-to-one -one correlation here. It can't just be because I wanted to have a book with my name on it, right? Like I did not want the endeavor to be exploitative. Of course you brought up like my mother 
my mother that she had threatened to sue. Yeah. And that was back. Actually, those weren't poems from the, the ghost of those were, those were like the Hansel and Gretel poems. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. So those were like poems I wrote pretty shortly after, after my MFA and she would find them. And she's like, I read what you wrote about me. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's, that's the speaker's mother, you know, or whatever. And she's like, bullshit, you know? Um, and she understood, she understood like the persona and the mask and she felt, she felt wounded. And so I thought about my mother, but I'm not here to obey my mother, right? Like that didn't work out for me when I lived with her and it doesn't serve me. And I was like, well, what serves me? What is the purpose of sharing this really personal project? And I said, well, it has to be because it's an act of speaking up, speaking out, speaking against silence and the violence and like not just the familial history but like the diasporic history too all of it there's so many silences it's not my mother is not the villain sure she did a lot of bad things but like the story extends far beyond her mm -hmm. and so i remember thinking in grief i read a lot of elegies and there's so many beautiful books out there but i didn't read ones where the speaker's experience mirrored or or closely resembled my own. And I also definitely didn't read one that said some messy things, like the messy thoughts I had. And I'm speaking specifically to, uh, I have a line in that book that says like, I'm glad that you are dead. Am I glad that you are dead? I'm glad that you are dead. Which was like, there's a relief too when the, when the person you know is troubled for years, like something bad is gonna happen and you don't know how to fix it. And then when it does happen, you're glad you don't have to dread it anymore. But then you have to now live with the fact that that person is actually dead, which is its own onslaught, you know, of feelings. So if the book was going to exist, then I wanted to make sure I engaged in a really frank and open discussion about everything contained in it. And to also make space for others who perhaps have thoughts or feelings and didn't know or weren't yet sure how to manifest that in the creative work, you know? Sure, I'm sure there are lots of texts out there. I just like, I didn't encounter those yet in like my various kind of years of schooling. And so I'm very conscious when I go and I present the book, I don't want to perform a racial trauma. That's not what I'm interested in. I read the poems about my experience from that time, but I'm really more interested in and facilitating conversations about family or difficult topics. Um, I don't have the answers, but I can share like my journey through them, which is to say like to be transparent about some possibilities and to really give permission to others to have those feelings. Mm. Because so often we redact that in our own imagination. And I really wanted to give people permission to do them and say, them, say those things, even if they don't ever like publish I think it's really important to just allow it. Yeah, I do too. Well, we have another question for you that I think deepens and extends from my question. It's from Pass Between the Covers guest and fellow multimedia image text poet and writer and fellow compatriot in your collective, She Who Has No Masters, Dow Strom. Hi, Diana. And thank you, David, for inviting me into this conversation. I'm so honored to get a part, to be a part of this. Um, and congratulations, Diana, to you on Root Fractures. 
uh, this book is amazing and resonated with me on so many levels. I'm so excited for it to be out in the world. So my question, I'm thinking about roots and fractures, things we are bound to or bound by, and things we are uprooted or fractured from, and how these conditions can be intertwined in complex ways. I'm also thinking about how what we are bound by can at times also lead to the need for fracture in order to negotiate survival, for instance. And I'm thinking of your doi moe poems in particular, how they play on this motif of renewal, and how in those poems there are these recurring declarations and movements I felt um, by the poem speaker away from the family, and declarations of separation from the family, and from the mother, um, but then how there are also statements about not being able to separate like the way water comes back in to fill a space, which was in one image, or um, one of the poems near the end, when the poem observes uh, how no tree in nature clears a space, setting out to find its own way. It is only a person who thinks to do this. I think that was on page 102. I have it written down. Um, that line I felt the tension of acutely in my own self and in regards to my own feelings about belonging and family and this complicated burden of what we carry as inheritors in diaspora. But I'm also thinking about how these poems for me feel like they are also creating their own bodies, new types of bodies to live in and speak through. And I've had the fortunate grace to collaborate with you, Diana, in our Vietnamese artist collective, She Who Has No Masters, and so I know a little bit about your techniques, especially using family archival photos and how you work probably with the outlines, the shapes of the bodies of your family members. Um, so my question is perhaps twofold. First, I want to ask what your experience of negotiating those tensions, the impulse to pull away from, the pool of being held by, what your experience of that has been as a writer moving through this material, but also as a diasporic person, as a daughter, as a woman, navigating the binds, the roots of, of familial and communal expectations that we know can be more pressured for those who are gendered female, and perhaps folding into that I'm wondering if some forms of fracture, of cutting, of separating might be necessary or at least beneficial or instrumental in order to create new bodies, new forms of being to, in effect, be able to renew ourselves. In a sense, I think what I'm wanting to ask you about is writing and art making as a potentially reparative process. I'm wondering if it has been so for you, if you believe it can be so for those of us who have been, who have had the experience of being rooted in fractures. Thank you, Diana, for fielding this question. Mm. 
Thank you, Dao. I was so struck in Dao's question of, and also observation about how roots like entangle, right? But also sometimes fractures happen, but sometimes they are happen because they're necessary for survival too. And there's a kind of complicated push-pull. And I understood, Dao, your question to be about the relationship also for me and art making and all of the life stuff kind of around that. I'll share this. I write in order to figure out what it is I'm thinking and feeling first and foremost. So I write to figure out what's going on because I don't always know, you know? And it's not that I'm not a self-aware person. I, I do, I, I think I think a lot about a lot of things. Um, myself, my interactions with other people, the relationships, other writers that I'm reading and, and engaging with. But there's something about the way in which it appears on the page when it surprises me. That's really valuable as a different kind of uh, a reflection of oneself. And I'm sure many, many writers have said that in more eloquent, eloquent ways. But the act of writing it is not reparative for those feelings. Like I don't feel like things are okay now with my mom, you know, because like I wrote, I wrote, I wrote that statement or something, but it gave me a kind of clarity of, oh, this is where I'm at right now in my feelings. It's as if there's a way in which I can have that uh, one-sided conversation as if in preparation for an eventual dialogue with somebody. And maybe the dialogue never happens, you know? And so in a sense, it's, it's not necessarily reparative, but there's a kind of calming effect in that, and I'm using the word play here in that it's practice, right? It, it, there's a kind of practice or practicum element toward real life relational conversations if they happen. And actually this, the part that's actually deeply repaired is only when I'm in conversation with others, other writers, other artists actually, do I feel a sense of belonging? Am I able to have really like rich conversations that leave me really feeling whole? Because my mother's not gonna ever be able to do that for me for various reasons. And nor do I expect or think that that could happen with my mother or anybody else in my family, actually. And I think it's only like working through these things on the page in the ways, you know, the, the multimedia ways that I do it, and then inviting space for others to do so, or befriending and being in conversation with others who do so, which is a lot of what happens in that collective. And then realizing like how much resonance there is and how sorrowful that is, but also like, Hey, we're alive, we're here. And there's something powerful about our, our ability to give voice to these things. When we didn't, we weren't able to read things like that, if that makes any sense. And honestly, that's that's why I write. It's like not even just like, oh, to reflect to myself. Yeah, sure. Nobody has to read that. That doesn't have to be a book. But I think it's really something about offering it into a space where it might connect or stimulate conversation and prompt others to kind of share things that would then further seed things within me. That's tremendous and fruitful. And so immediately I'm thinking in terms of images, like 
Sometimes I leave a pothos too long in a small pot, you know, and all those roots like are really densely clustered and that's not good for it. Not at all. By the way, I like, don't know much about gardening. Okay. But this is just my, my, my shoddy experience with plants. And then like, you need to like sometimes separate them or put them into different pots. So they have room to truly thrive and get the nutrients that they want. And painfully, because I can hear the popping of the roots sometimes when you're trying to separate because they tear, because you're not able to go through it with like tweezers to untangle everything. But the plant usually can still survive, right? It's painful, that separation. I can't go back in time and, and prevent, you know, that from happening. But this funny thing, when I was thinking, like when Dao was asking that question, like that's how painful it was for me over and over again to extract myself or to distance myself from my mother or my family because it wasn't a positive force or factor in my life at that moment. And yet those wounds, of course, they heal, new groups grow around, right? The, the wound tissue for sure. But there's still a kind of yearning for what used to be there. And rather than trying to like banish that from my mind, I'd rather like to make space for that yearning too, even though I know I've chosen to be distant. And I think it's actually really important to just be transparent again about all the complicated feelings, even if they contradict, because life is like that. And but here's the other funny thing, you know, like the pothos and their different pots, like they'll continue to grow and they form like new pothos communities and families. And who knows, actually, sometimes enough of that particular pothos contingency might find its way back to the part it was originally separated from, you know, and they're not the same. They're not going to entangle in the same way. I'm just using pothos as a standard for myself and my family members here, right, and, and the diaspora and, and the folks that I've met, writers, you know, um, with whom I feel a kind of sense of kinship, kinship, belonging, Um it's true. Sometimes we do have to like tear only because like the entanglement was just so strong. There was no easy way to get free. Could, could we hear the poem that she references? The one that's on 102, yeah. 103? Yeah, sure. Noi, Mui. There arrives a time when neither mother nor father knows more about a child than the child could know about herself, when she has been gone longer than the time it took to form her first memory. Perhaps one day my mother will tell me what she knows and can't yet forget. Perhaps one day my father will tell me that he doesn't know why he stood by as she raged, and I will tell him how I saw his sorrow, even when he looked away. When a father helps his daughter to skate, they both hold hands, though she is moving away from him. With the same hands I used to keep balance, I am now riding my way back home. Even biologists now move away from the perspective of an individual to focus on cooperation and interconnectivity. In the old growth force, as in the family, of course there is conflict but also negotiation and forms of reciprocity so singular to the one who offers it 
that I think of it as the song one sings while moving alone in the wild. Anywhere there is life on land, there are webs underground passing nourishment, signal, and water. No tree in nature clears a space, setting out to find its own way. It is only a person who thinks to do this. All this time, I have been moving in the wrong direction. When I was a child, my father would hide in the dark to jump out when we least expected it. And precisely because we loved him so much, we looked away from him as he looked away from his wife, who had temporarily metamorphosed into a different kind of mother. Looking back now, I see each of us looking in the wrong place. Is it easier for a child to focus on one monster because to know that there are multiple in varying degrees and numerous places can be too much to bear for one so small and how to comprehend an intermittent one. The days we spend estranged gather like snow dusting on the needles of a fir tree. Eventually, the load will tip over as ice calves from glaciers, but the calving of ice is not the same as the calving of a whale or wildebeest. There comes a time for separation, and let us hope it is neither too early nor too late. Nothing split fits back the same, but I don't want things the way they were. Perhaps a single moment of light in the family could reveal the past to have been illusion. Kintsugi, the art of putting pieces back together, but lining the cracks in gold so as to illuminate what once was broken. Been listening to Diana Koi Wen read from Root Fractures. So I, I wanted to spend at least a moment with all that you do outside of language that you've already referenced and how much that is part of the journey of being able to speak into and about this. Your, your poetry to begin with begins not only with photographs, but redacted photographs, and they were redacted by another, as we've already spoken to and about. The first thing on any page, in a sense, is not a word, but you also have engaged with your family story in many other ways outside of language. Uh, the short videos you've made where you've used home videos from your childhood or old videos of your parents from then, and which sometimes involve you now reenacting past movies of your mother with you as her, or where the frame of somebody's body in a video is replaced with a childhood video within it, or with a rushing river or flowers blowing in the wind. Even more, I think of your reenactments of eating the same foods from your brother's last meal or making a cardboard facsimile of his coffin and lying within it, both in your house and out in the fields, and sometimes filming the sky from within the coffin. All of these actions and reenactments, this intense imagining of yourself as your mother or as your brother, something that you've called radical eulogy or radical empathy. I'd love to hear more about them in, in their own right, but also if they're playing a crucial role in you being able to come to the page with language or whether they're just another thing that you're doing alongside the poems that you're doing in the book. The answer be both. <laughs> Which is, um, 
yeah, for sure they exist alongside and I don't have a desire to try to like adapt any aspects or stills from the video projects into the manuscript here. But at the same time, they share roots. They share root systems, right? For sure. I'll take a couple steps backwards, which is my sister actually found the videos. I mean, I guess we knew where they were all along, but we had forgotten about them. And this is after my brother had died. And her roommate, actually, her roommate's father digitizes these, you know, VHS. And so we got them digitized. And I don't even know she watched it, actually. She just was like, of course she knows me. She's like, do you want these? And I said, yes. Yes, I want them. I mean, I just, just for the record, like I have no training in video work whatsoever. But I wanted to know. I'm a person who doesn't avoid anymore, like I did for time. And now I feel like I have a practice where I can approach. Um, it just takes me time. And I spent time with the videos. I wasn't trying to make video projects pieces, but I found myself like immediately hungry for them because here my brother was moving and was alive. Of course, he didn't cut himself out of every picture in the whole house, not in all the photo albums, just on the wall, right? But here I could hear his voice again, you know, like at different stages of his life. But not only that, it was like, oh, wait, who are, who are we? Of course, this was like during my PhD. So like in my brain, I'm also like, I'm thinking like an auto ethnographer, you know, like yeah. there's a like, I'm, I'm like charted, like, I'm like, I got the scholarly brain of what I'm seeing as if we're, is this, you know, like, who are these people? Like, that's not me, but you know, it's a version of me, but I'm also charting my own emotional journey and what I'm thinking as I'm like encountering. And so those two things are converging and they don't always overlap. And that was like a remarkable experience. I couldn't like, I just was like, wow. So I would like stop sometimes and I'd be like, I need to do something with this. There'd be a moment where I'd stop and my brother would be overlapped over my body and we're in a field and there's like a sewer drain. And I don't know, just that one image itself felt really apt for some reason, like the two ghosts in the archive kind of overlapped on each other. And so, you know, kind of in the same way where when I make, when I engage on the white, on the page, I was like, I, I have iMovie, that's free. I opened it up, I put in the file and it began cutting, right? And like editing is maybe perhaps kind of similar to like, like assembling a cento with found language. You're just, you already have the images and now it's like, oh, these bits were calling to me. So I'm going to just use my, you know, razor blade, my electronic razor blade to just splice those moments and put them on a timeline, right? It's linear. It only goes in one direction, the timeline, at least for me at that moment. And then I was like, you know, I may not have any training, but I've had many years of thinking about poem, juxtaposition, order, sound, image, all those things. And I could, I found myself, I could translate that with the archive and use the archive as like, right, my, my huge pantry of materials. And so, of course, naturally, I began to assemble these things for no reason other than like, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun and it scared me and it spooked me and it made me sad. I cried a lot. And then I also laughed a lot as we do when we look at old family things. Um, again, for what other purpose than to just like have it, you know, and like, and I think I maybe shared it with my dad. Um, it became really vital because it opened up new pathways for how I was thinking about family via text on a page, right? So I think a lot about Carolyn Bergvall's work, 
and how it will manifest as a book, but it can also be like a video piece, but also an installation, but also X, Y, Z, right? Like, and maybe a project might exist in multiple different forms because like the creative question and drive are kind of the same and they're not even adaptations of each other perhaps, right? Um, but it's just like, oh, it's now also this and it's now also this. So I guess when I said it was both, it's like, it's because both practices fuel each other into existence um, and they're kind of essential to each other. They enable each other to see and to be. They're like siblings in that way, you know? Like now they're part of this kind of family of, of work. And I really love it because it helps me to continue to have discovery. And that's what I'm looking for when I'm making. And I use that word now too, like I compose things, right? Like not like musical composer, but like, I'm not just only like composing words on a page, but I'm thinking about video texture and what am I doing with them, with it, with those materials, right? You know, the forms and the constraints are kind of different, but I think I approach both of the kind of playfulness and also like, what happens if I do this? What happens if I turn the sentence in this direction? What will emerge? You know, I don't always know. And that's what I'm looking for. Like, what happens? Thinking of Victoria's question about how the second book is or isn't related to the first, while Root Fractures continues engaging with the photographs, they feel maybe, they don't feel like a small part of the new book, but they feel like a smaller part of the new book compared to Ghost of, or maybe mm. slightly less central to the project. And the Vietnamese language seems more prominent in the new book. There's more words just generally, I think, in the new book, but also more Vietnamese words. Not just the titles of the series you, you just read from, but the dedication at the beginning to my mother and father and their parents, where the word for parents is in Vietnamese. And similarly, the first poem of the book is a poem entirely in Vietnamese with no translation. So thinking of the notion of root fractures and growing from within a fracture or regrowth within a fracture and Dow's question about the reparative, I wonder about the relative flourishing of Vietnamese in the new book compared to the first and if this is a sign of that in some way. But either way, I'd love to hear about the choices you made about how and when to include Vietnamese in the book. Yeah, I love this question. I, I I can't even repeat what you just said, but you said something about like the flourishing. And in, immediately in my head, I like just saw like Vietnamese popping out of English, you know? And that's kind of what happened actually. So a little bit of backstory, uh, Vietnamese is, was my first language. And right before kindergarten, my parents said no more Vietnamese, only English, because they didn't want me to become an ESL student in elementary school. And all my memories, I only thought I only spoke English, actually. And it wasn't until I, the home videos that I see myself speaking really fluent, you know, Southern slang and dialect, like my father's side of the family, Vietnamese. Shock. Like, who is that? I can't do that. Like, Diana right now can't do that. But that little Diana, whoo, look at her. Right? And so there was like a disconnect there, you know? but I can't deny the archive. Like nobody, nobody made that up. And I realized like that's in me. Sure. I can translate my parents, but like I, I have a hard time speaking because re recall is so much 
more taxing on the brain than recognition in terms of a, a language, right? And so something happened. My relationship to the language, just like my relationship to my parents, rather than running away from my family and running away from my parents, also wasn't running away from my culture anymore. And I think a great deal of that was because I, be I had begun the, this connection and these collaborations with the Vietnamese Artists Collective, right? She has no masters. And then for the first time in my life, I was amongst people like me, right? In terms of like their relatives look like my relatives, and none of them were like doctors or lawyers, you know, like, and we were all artists and we all had stuff we were working through and they were kind to me, David. They were like really kind to me. And I don't know if I can recall prior to that moment, and maybe because a child only remembers, tends to remember the negative events more strongly than the positive ones, but I don't really remember hearing Vietnamese in a way that's playful or tender. So it really transformed my relationship to Vietnamese culture, uh, Vietnamese American culture, I'll say. And I actually enrolled in a Vietnamese language class um, in the middle, in the pandemic as a result. And that's actually kind of when I, when I started my collaboration with She Who Has No Masters. And it was funny because, you know, I was the oldest student. It was all first and second year undergrads, but also how amazing that they had this class and immediately I could, I picked it up. Like, it was like, I knew it was like, oh, I, I, the literacy was hard because I couldn't like read and write, but I already knew all the sounds and tones. And it was just like mapping it on, right? The semiotics of the language. And as I began to take this class and do the exercises, it was like a deja vu, David. It was like, oh, I do know all this. It's like, finally, like I'm accessing all these things that were really buried back in there. And also that same semester, I found out unexpectedly that I was pregnant, which was like such a surprise. And then also surprised that I was delighted by that because my whole life I had been really like not terrified of parenthood, didn't want to, didn't want to be a parent necessarily. So it was like, it was really confusing, David, like hormonally, linguistically, I found myself having Vietnamese thoughts. It was like so strange. And then after the after the baby was born, I don't know what to tell you. It was like I could start speaking to my parents in Vietnamese. Sure, I, I had taken that class. But something about like before when I tried to, I would get tongue-tied and I would get stuck and I couldn't say it. I could just say it. And even though when I didn't know words, I would just pause and be like, what's the word for that? Okay, and then I would continue. As if like, before there was a kind of self-consciousness or shame or baggage. And then now it's like I picked back up and I was like, a, I had like five-year-old proficiency in the language, but with like, you know, a 37 or 38-year-old's like knowledge too that my parents' dialect is extremely xenophobic, which I discovered in taking the class. I remember learning certain words for like, Japanese people are called this. People from China are called this. And in my head, I was like, oh, but isn't there also this word? You know, and I would say that in class. And you could see the teacher just try hard not to cringe, you know, and then just very gently say like, no, that's not the proper way to, to say it. We actually say this. And immediately I was like, oh, my parents are racist. And those were like the inappropriate non-PC terms that I thought was the norm. And I just revealed myself. And you bring that into the collection. I love yes. it. There's several places in the collection where that gets dramatized. And, and let me be clear. Like I wrote most of these 
poems before I gave birth. But when I started to assemble them, I had already given birth and my relationship to the Vietnamese language was different. And that really transformed the way in which I allowed or shepherded the Vietnamese language to be on the page with the same kind of equal consideration as an English word because that's how my mind thinks now. And it made sense for me to do that. And I do recognize, like, I mean, at the time I was like, that's probably risky. Nobody would want to, maybe people don't want to see that. A publisher might not want to see that, right? It can feel so alienating, especially since I'm making the decision not to italicize, not to have translations in the glossary. But all of that was purposeful, right? Like, because in my head, sometimes I don't always know what the words mean either right? Even though they emerge for me. And so I'm actually okay if the reader doesn't have access. Of course, I'm like, in our kind of current technological moment, we can, we can look it up. But what I mean when I say doi mai is actually really different from what the internet says, because my relationship to it is pretty feral one. Mm. And, I, and this is where, like, when you were asking your question, I was like, seeing it like a root growing through another root, you know, like the Vietnamese was like, I was here all along, you know, <laughs> make room for me, bitches, you know? <laughs> which is like, sure, I'm sure, it, you yeah. know, as a child, like you approximate language based on how people use it around you and how you make sense. It's all relational. I mean, that's just language. And so maybe I didn't know about economic reforms in Vietnam, which is what Noi Mui usually refers to. But for me, it sounded like words which meant like, all right, new stage, <laughs> you know, like kind of just like something like, all right, new phase, blank slate or whatever, you know, but that's not what it means. Like there's no dictionary that would say that it means that, but that definition for me is just as valid as all the others, because that's what that Vietnamese word means to me, like to Diana, circa whatever year. I wanted to ask you another Vietnamese language question too, because yeah. in Victoria's blurb that I read in the intro, where she says, leaping imagistic declarative sentences become fractured and unreliable as a way to parse and thread memories and feelings. Stacked to the sky, the declaratives become tenuous and subjunctive. It makes me think of an interview you did at Four Way Books where you talk about how your dissertation was partly focused on verb tenses in Vietnamese and how there is no subjunctive tense or mood in Vietnamese. And I guess I wondered what that absence of the subjunctive signifies for you in, in your own life and family life and in your poetry, especially given that Victoria is pointing to how your poetry itself is becoming subjunctive by stacking up the declarative sentences. So in this case, declarative English sentences, but I wonder if those are echoing the declarativeness of Vietnamese. Can you speak a little bit about the subjunctive in that regard? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't speak to what Victoria was saying, but I got really excited by what she was saying. So I have to say this with a disclaimer. You know, I am by no means fluent in Vietnamese. I don't know Vietnamese very well, but I know it as a, as like a person who's like lived in my family and has this kind of feral relationship with it that's ongoing. I remember years ago watching a TED Talk by a classicist, tattoo artist, Vietnamese American man living in Maine. <laughs> and he, and his, the whole point of his talk was illuminating, but he was basically saying that Vietnamese does not have a subjunctive language. 
And I have not verified that, but I reflected and I was like, I don't know if I know how to say the language of regret or possibility in Vietnamese or if I've heard it, right? And actually, I've only ever heard imperatives, declaratives, and future-facing sentences for my family. And that made so much sense to me when I was doing my PhD studies because I was like, well, what do we expect from refugees, right? It's really like, how do we stay alive? And how do we orient our bodies towards success in the future? And that also means the success of our children and so forth. So it's very future oriented. And never did they talk about the past. Almost nearly never, even when I asked. And so not only is it declarative, but it was really like, if we think about the temporal nature, it's really like skewed, right? And it was only like, when I was thinking about it, I was like, wow, how do we even say possibility and, and I was really struck in this Ted, this Ted talk because he was a baby. He was an infant when his family was supposed to get on a bus in Vietnam to leave. And for some reason they didn't get on the bus, maybe because like the baby cried and then the bus later blew up. Right. And so this person grew up knowing this happened, this kind of origin story. And of course that's fascinating for a person. Right. And so he asked, he would ask his relatives like, what do you think would have happened if we had been on that bus? And I love, I love the response that his relatives gave because there's just so matter of fact, they're like, what? Like they, they didn't think they don't, that's not even a possibility, right? Or it's like, what do you mean? We didn't get on the bus. We're here. But he, like, you know, having spent all of his life, like formative life, except for birth, like in the United States with, in, in, with a different kind of intimacy with the English language, has a different relationship to possibility, regret, and time, and access through that through English. And I was thinking about like that, I was like, me too. Actually, me too. Like, I have the subjunctive in, in my imagination, but I don't know if, I don't know how my parents do. Sorry, this is a long way of saying, I still carry so much of the structures, syntactically, grammatically, that my parents indoctrinated and raised me in. And in addition to that, I have all the other stuff that I have acquired through schooling and community along the way. And there is no reconciling all of them, but really just making space for them to kind of exist. And so, because I don't know how to say the subjunctive in Vietnamese, sometimes when I'm looking back at past memories and thinking about my parents, it's like an asymptote, like I'm trying to approach a subjunctive mood or, or place within memory but I have this unknown constraint where I'm only using declarative and I'm just kind of constantly trying to, to get there, if that makes any sense. And that's what that's what I was thinking of when Victoria said that, but like I wasn't, it wasn't conscious by any means. But I'm constantly thinking about alternative possibility and regret. And I don't doubt for a fact that my parents don't have regret, but I've not heard them articulate it in the Vietnamese language, you know? Mm-hmm. And so how does it live within them? Like I can say it in English. And it's as if I'm using English to try to like build a bridge to the Vietnamese that I don't know, you know? I love that. Thinking thinking of your looking at yourself when you were seven on the video and the uncanniness of seeing your fluency in Vietnamese. I have so many questions for you about this book and in general about doubling, mirroring, repetitions, hauntings, and ghosts. 
But before I ask them, we have a question for you from your own double, the poets Cindy Juyong Oak, whose debut book, Ward Toward, was picked by Ray Armantrout for one of the most prestigious prizes in poetry in the U.S., the Yale Series of Younger Poets Prize, whose past winners include Muriel Rukeyser, John Ashbery, Jean Valentine, Bridget Begin Kelly, Fatty Judah, and many others. And you and Cindy have created a joint double Instagram account and a joint tour where instead of Cindy promoting Ward Toward and you Root Fractures, your Instagram account is Root Words. And you, there's an image of you, both, half of each other's faces making one face. So before she asks you, before your double asks you, her question about repetition and recursion. Do you want to say anything about this gesture that you've chosen with her of doubling and twinning um, between, yeah. between the two of you? I hadn't thought about it as doubling, but for sure, I was thinking about that poster for Face Off from the 90s, yes. you know, um, with Cage and Travolta. We decided to become a joint entity in part because it's so exposing to have a book in the world and then to like talk about it, promote it. I mean, yeah, I'm doing it here, but like, that's scary. I'm sweating up a storm, you know? Right, and now, right now you're sweating? Yeah. I always sweat on Zoom. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I think it's a Zoom thing, but. Well, I hope it's um, not me. No, no, not because I'm nervous. It's just, it's just, it's just my physiological response to doing this. It's just inherently so exposing. It's like one thing for like, okay, somebody can pick up a book and read it. But then to like have your face right there and to be the instrument with which the poetry is like delivered to people's bodies is a whole nother thing. And, you know, she and I had both kind of shared various forms of anxieties about expectations of having to do right by the book or to, to do what the publisher wants. And ultimately, you know, you do have agency over what you want to do or not. But I also understood in these conversations that Cindy did want to, to do these things for the book but also had a lot of reservations. And immediately I was like, well, let's do it together. That's my, that's usually my response to anything. Like I can offer myself, right? Like I don't want to be alone too, but I would never have thought to ask somebody else to do it with me. But when posed with this kind of space where we overlapped, why not be in it together? And so we did. Then we had really excited conversations of like, well, what does that mean? What is our intention? And really then it's like, oh, how can we offer forth a different example of how to be in the world with a book and how to care for the birthing of that book, which is to say, it's like a joint birthday party. You know, of course we do that. So why not with books? And sure, that might mean more logistics, you know, like you go to an event and somebody's going to have to buy maybe two books instead of one and they might not, and that's okay. But it gave us both safety and shelter and community and camaraderie. And it, it is collaborative because then like I'm already thinking about the conversations we've had and the kind of projects and, you know, we're slated to do some panels. We're going to do a panel, the Association of Asian American Studies, you know, like a workshop on mental health, um, which dovetails with both our books. Um, yeah. So that's what I wanted to say about my double. <laughs> well, well, let's invite her into the into the space with us. Yeah. 
Diana, congratulations on root fractures. The title makes me think about fractals, the different images of tapestries, garden seeds, mother's braids, the fractures that come from a central root. Uh, There are all these repeated titles and forms in this book, um, and some of them reach back to Gustav. And I wanted to ask about the poetic recursion, which I think can reflect the realities of repetition. So, for example, you know, um, anxiety recurs, grief is incredibly wave-like and ritualistic. I, I think about two mirrors pointed at each other, presenting a kind of confusion about what's the root, what's the real, what's the original. Uh, and the learning and translation and etymology you get into is also a kind of recursion, right? A, a kind of touching back, returning, uh, maybe like a recursive function, generations present this opportunity for each next item to be defined by past ones, but then also maybe have some kind of break from the function or the pattern. Uh, So in this practice of recursion and connected poems and connected books, how do memory and language participate for you actively? Uh, What ideas or words or shapes run back into themselves and which ghosts have recurred and returned in your writing or also reading life? And are there any that have maybe moved on that you feel have kind of left you and and shifted um, in terms of the the recursions that were happening before? I really love Root Fractures, and I love you very much, Diana. Congrats again. Oh, I love you too, Cindy. Thank you for this question. Recursion. It's funny because in writing, I'm not consciously trying to dive into any particular thing, but only in retrospect do I realize there are a lot of common themes and a lot of repetitions and a lot of echoes. And of course I've been, it's like as as if I've been, forgive the, the verb, I've been like rooting in language and memory, but also to like my, my, my literal mother tongue, as if I'm like trying to figure out like, when did it happen? You know, like, when did things go awry? Or like, are there clues? Like, what was seeded and then bore fruit to to happen in terms of like disaster or tragedy? Like, are those seeds like still in me? These are kind of like questions that don't, that don't really have answers, but these are things that I wrestle with sometimes when I think about family and intergenerational trauma, but also violences which recur throughout generations. It's something I think about all the time in elementary school and it was in Southern California. So we have a big, you know, outdoor courtyard. And whenever there was a school assembly, all the classes would exit their classrooms and, you know, assemble in these like ants, like ants to, to the, to the main courtyard. And I remember walking through the hallway in the line and there was a young boy and he was counting. He would take three steps forward and then two steps back and then count three steps forward and I was like, what an inefficient, you know, of course, I was like, what an inefficient way of moving. But I never forgot that boy. I don't even know who it was. I don't, I don't know this person, but I'll never forget the one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one. It's like a, it's like a skipping metronome, right? Like it's not skipping the right way. And, you know, all these years later, that's become a really critical <laughs> guiding post wow. in my thinking and poetics which is 
when I write, I put down a few words and then I go all the way back to the beginning. And I move really slowly through those words before I can then offer a fourth, a third, and a fifth word. And that's how I write. It's this recursive process. That's just literal, right? But also I'm doing that memory all the time. I'm revisiting the same memories, the same memories, the same memories. So yes, repetitious, but it's never the same because I see different things. I am different every time. And then people have said, because I've read stuff, that like every time you recall the memory, the memory is also transformed. So the memory itself is also changing each time it's handled. So none of it is stable, right? So I cannot help but, but pair recursion, repetition with permutation, which is sometimes we want to, I'm just going through all these weird metaphors now. Sometimes we just keep asking the eight, the magic eight ball, the same question. And sometimes it keeps giving us the same answer, but sometimes it's a little different, right? I feel like I'm doing that lyrically. I'm doing that in terms of the memory work. And then of course, what manifests in the language are those repetitions and are those recursions, but they're each accumulating something different. I think. One thing that's interesting about all three of our questions from Cindy Dow and Victoria is that in a way they're all different ways of asking about repetition and recursion with Victoria, whether this new book is an extension of the first with Dow questions of family trauma and how it reverberates down and up generations. And with Cindy most explicitly about repetition and recursion in the form of the book and as a mode I have many questions about repetition myself, and I'm going to quote you on it before I begin exploring it more with you. So here is you on repetition, again, from the four-way review interview. Having some kind of logic or algorithm helps one to do the work of living after a trauma. Repetition can be a kind of engine to help you continue. Then in doing the living, there's ultimately a deviation from the repetition, which makes me human as I figure out ways to go on after my brother. Grief is immobilizing and repetition can help, but to repeat only and not address what happened is dangerous. Repetition can afford us a kind of safety. Even here in your exploration of repetition, it becomes about a double nature of it, a way to grieve and endure, but also a way to protect oneself from grieving and from enduring in a potentially harmful way. If there isn't a deviation, a newness within the re repetition itself. And I feel like in the new book, like Cindy's notion of the fractal, which is the repetition from the most micro to the most macro of a pattern, that the new book really goes to a new place with doubling and maybe as a first step to look at the various ways this occurs, we could talk about ghosts and hauntings, which feel like a repetition and a doubling. And I think of Jane Wong's thesis, Going Toward the Ghost, The Poetics of Haunting in Contemporary Asian American Poetry, where she says in her abstract, rather than a psychoanalytic understanding of haunting, I define haunting in terms of invocation, a deliberate, powerful, and provocative move toward haunted places. And then she looks at the works of Teresa Hakyung Cha, Myung Mi Kim, Sawako Nakayasu, Banu Kapil, 
Kathy Park Hong and Barbara Jane Ray's. And Wong insists, quote, that form and history cannot be occluded from our discussion of Asian American poetry and poetry as a larger whole. By highlighting the ghost, I seek to create sites of transparency, intervention, and activism in this critical field. So jumping ahead to your interview of Jane and Baum, you begin with the Lucille Clifton epigraph that opened her collection, uh, an epigraph by Clifton that goes, I will keep the door unlocked until something human comes. And then you talk about it in relation to keeping portals open to the non-human and possibly latching the door in human cases. And you talk about how your mother once called you to say, make sure to keep the windows in your car cracked even a little bit so that your brother may enter while you are driving. And that's something that you then found yourself doing. So I guess I wonder if you could talk about what ghosts mean to you in the world, um, how ghosts manifest in language or in your poetry. And if, if this notion or framing of Jane's, which is a particularly Asian American framing, if you feel like that is something that speaks to you. Oh, it very much resonates for me to think about how form and content are inseparable. And it's actually like a site of what's the word I want to use here? Like tremendous resonance, right? For ancestors, for ghosts, for memories. That doesn't even have to be like a human or humanoid entity, right? So my relationship to ghosts it's evolved for sure, because I think I was trying to, in ghost of, it was like trying to hold hands or capture, you know, like to just make that ghost stay still so that I could like be close enough-ish to my brother again. I feel like that was my impetus in that particular work. But years have passed now and where I'm no longer trying to chase the ghost and I'm no longer running away from what I'm like haunted of within my family. And I'm also no longer scared. I think that's the biggest thing. I'm no longer fearful. And so my relationship now is like grief, the deceased. It's like its own family member, right? Like if the grief went away, I would be bereft. <laughs> you know, I don't even know how to say that. Like yeah. I've learned to live with it. It, it like brings me great company and it doesn't cause me deep anguish. Like for sure, sometimes I'm overcome with emotion, but like I know to expect that. It's so familiar and it's so familial now. And what's we have what we haven't talked about yet too is how like writing Ghost of enabled the ending of silence about so many things between my family and I. Like we were never able to directly talk about the things that I wrote about perhaps but because at some point my mother, my family did become aware of what I wrote about, it really changed the way we interacted. For instance, all of a sudden one year, the pictures weren't up anymore and different pictures were up. You know, like I could casually bring my brother up into Thanksgiving conversation and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like reprimanded, you know? And so there's a way in which the living changed, 
but also because the living changed, it allowed for the one who was not here to like move freely. You know, what, what is that Samaj Sharif poem, Vulnerability Study? It's like a wall cleared of nails so the ghosts can walk through. Like in my family, there are no more nails, you know, like there are no more nails. So the ghosts, I mean, the ghosts could walk before, but it was like, you know, <laughs> like they had to duck maybe, or like, it was just didn't feel good to have a nail to walk through, but like there are no more nails. And, and I think because of that, and maybe, maybe people will feel differently, but now I'm like, oh, I need to scroll through my book to double check my, what am I about to say? I don't feel like my brother is here in a pronounced way, actually. It's interesting because after, I'm going to have you read some poems, but afterwards, that's my next question for you. Oh. <laughs> is around my own sense, I agree with you. Let's hold off yeah. on, let's hold off on okay. you talking about it. Because I want to hear more <laughs> about it. But what I was hoping is we could hear three from the Cape Disappointment series. And just and if you want to say anything about the series, uh, feel free. Um, you don't have to. You could just read the poems, too. Oh, I would love to, David. This is my favorite part, you know. How can I give you the metadata? <laughs> <laughs> I was on your coast, actually. I flew yes. into Portland and then took a bus and then a shuttle. And then I was at Willapa Bay, the artist-in-residence. Um, I guess what they call it, the artist-in-residency. And... You know, so for those who don't know, it's along a long, thin peninsula. One side is the Pacific Ocean, and the other side is the largest kind of estuary in North America. And I was there in the month of May, which is really fortuitous for me. It's my birth month. Um, I usually, like, really protect that month for myself emotionally. And it also so happens that's a time of great migration for birds going north or birds going south at that particular estuary. So every day I was constantly going on all these walks. I would go for walks um, with the varying tides. But just at the, the southernmost part of the peninsula is a state park, Cape Disappointment, just over the border from Oregon. And what a name, right? Like I had to visit. So, I mean, yeah, the series is called Cape Disappointment. And what that what, what that name is referring to is there's a slight cape right at the end of that peninsula where ships were constantly getting wrecked. They thought they could just pass through and make easy passage, but the waters were deceptive and it didn't work out. I don't know the full logistics nautical wise, um, but I think that's kind of why it's called Cape Disappointment. I kind of love that, right? Things aren't what they appear and it's actually a shit show. <laughs> 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 that's kind of life actually, yes. right? And it's actually... We laugh and I use that language, but it's like, it's really what happens afterwards that I think is really rich, right? In terms of like what we learn about people and what it means to be human and what it means to repair, build, stay alive, right? I'm really fascinated in that. And so maybe something about walking the shoreline along the bay, being there when it was high tide and low tide, you know? it really emerged in this kind of form, new form for me where I really wanted, like, that's, I didn't know, I wanted to convey a kind of horizontal space within a kind of portrait-oriented page, which meant that the poem doesn't really start until the end of the page. And then we just get a few, a few strands. And I would write these periodically over the month. And then, uh, and we haven't talked about ordering and sequencing, but I wanted to scatter them throughout. And ultimately, I had so many serial poems in this project that I didn't want them to be clusters. I wanted them to braid because I wanted them to reflect or refract each other. 
I love thinking about Cindy's notion of like a mirror. They're all mirrors, right? Mirroring in on each other. So that was my long-winded ramp up to talk about reading some excerpts from Cape Disappointment. Cape Disappointment. Sedge and sea asparagus submerge, reemerge. What happens when the time comes and the tide doesn't? Startled, my mother and I find each other in passing. The robin with mouths to feed reverses just before my window. Isn't it you, mother, looking me in the eye before you strike? Cape Disappointment. Open the window to erase your ghost, or maybe let one in. I unlatch like a cello case, air filling every dent in the velvet. A burr in the wool sock, that's what inspired Velcro. Why does this avocado rot before it can ripen? Time and time again, it is time we can't apprehend. Cape Disappointment. What might distinguish museum from mausoleum? Objects which don't reproduce. My portrait reveals the furrow my mother carries, which her mother carried. No need for lighthouses placed close together. A reflection of water as on glass. Aren't they ghosts? I've been listening to Diana Quay when read from Root Fractures. So to pick up the thread from when I interrupted you before about whether this book is about your brother, you, you've shared a, f a funny anecdote about the Vietnamese Buddhist ritual of leaving out a meal for the dead on the anniversary of their death and how your parents were leaving out many meals instead and food you weren't supposed to eat and that they didn't eat, but because they didn't want to be wasteful, if you or your sister were visiting, they would have you eat it. And you also share that you aren't religious or superstitious. Um, but thinking of you eating this meal meant for your brother, much as you've also eaten the last meal your brother actually ate, in one poem, you make a twin or a double out of hunger and grief or mourning. You say both hunger and mourning are defined by what neither has. And it's interesting to think about hunger as a haunting. When I, I think about your two collections, the way they most seem to differ to me, and I say differ with an asterisk because the difference is also somehow also an extension and a repetition is that the first feels more fully centered around your brother and the second has moved more toward the haunting or hunger or desire to understand your mother. And I'm curious if that feels true to you because I also have trouble separating the various videos and interviews I've engaged with from the book itself. But when I think of you recreating in video home movies of your mother's honeymoon but you now as your mother. I also think of all the poems in this collection 
where you're traveling to Vietnam with your mother, where people in Vietnam become your alternate lives, your doubles in another country, you seeing a woman picking up noodles and thinking that would have been me, and your mother seeing a woman on a motorbike and saying the same thing. And lastly, we have these poems from the Long Beach Peninsula, the Cape Disappointment series, from which you just read, where you say you were imagining the time your mother was hiding by a beach for a year when she was trying to get out of Vietnam. So it feels as if to understand what your brother did to the photos, and by extension, to understand your brother, and to understand your parents' response to the photos and their response to your poems, it feels like you've moved up the ancestral line as part of that. I, I don't know if you called it an ethnography or a, a, a self-auto-anthropology, but, yeah. but this does this feel right to you? Does this feel connected to hauntings and hunger to you that maybe the ghost has shifted in some way? Or the focus yeah. of the haunting is shifted in the new book? Absolutely. But I think it wasn't the haunting that shifted. It was how I re- like saw the haunting, if that makes sense. Because maybe before, I was just so myopic in the grief, thinking about my brother and his body and that gaping hole in our family, literally an archive, right? And then over time, I realized like, no, actually. I mean, yes, but also at the ancestral altars, my brother and my grandfather's, and then other faces I don't know, you know, like there's, there's a lot, there's a feast put out, you know, like, and you're, you're supposed to celebrate like each person's death anniversary, you know, and, and I don't anymore because I don't see family and I don't know all the resonances of those dates, but I celebrate my brothers. And so there's so many hauntings that I didn't even have language or memory for, but they were all there alongside my brother for sure. And it is like moving up um, or moving through or following the thread and the roots, right? Just tracing like, okay, so I've been thinking about my brother and I carry him with me. And I had been thinking about my parents, but I'd only just started to think about my parents in that first book. And I began to think more about them quite specifically, but also my complicated relationship with them. And perhaps this is also where I share that I was also trying to think about all of these narratives I had been witnessing within the diaspora because concurrent with my PhD or actually even part of my PhD research, I did all these oral history interviews or I call them dialogues with folks. And whenever I encountered somebody who had some connection to Vietnam, it was really inspired by Bonham Couples the vertical interrogation of strangers, right? Mm-hmm. Like I came up with my list of questions that hopefully weren't mine. I didn't want to be leading lest I, I like navigate somebody into a traumatic space. So they were kind of open. One question was like, you know, how did you play as a child and stuff like that. Um, and then people could just, you know, begin at whatever point and I would just listen, but it never felt right to, to write into other people's experiences or memories. So I just really enjoyed embodying and listening and the intimacy of transcribing what they said. And all of that 
is in me, David, right? I heard those stories. I'm not writing about their stories, but those listening to other people's narratives really had me listen to my parents, my mother, and thinking about versions of myself and possibilities for myself and my mother and, and other members of the family. And there's a way in which when I'm now, when I'm talking about my family members in this particular book, it, there's a way in which those renderings are also reflecting off the other narratives that are contained in me, right? Like nobody would detect that. Nobody would be like, oh, I see so-and-so's you know, story about their mom right here. But I see it. I see that that seed existed. And that's something really different in this book because I had done literally all of this, like this kind of ethnographic project that I don't really know yet what I'm going to do with other than to like have a record, right, of, of these narratives. So yes, not thinking about the brother because I was more interested in the living and what they reflect of those who aren't here. And that includes all of us when we were younger, myself at seven, my sister at five, my mother at her thirties or twenties, my father. And that's also what I've been doing the video work. The four of us continue to be like, what are those things? Um, I guess crystals or like gems that like reflect light in different ways. I like to use each of us as a kind of lens for how do I revisit this moment, you know? And I'm and going back to the kind of question about subjunctive too, it's not only about like what happened, it's also like what could have happened. Mm -hmm. um, and if I'm allowed to, I know I mentioned like my relationship to language and how that changed when I was pregnant and then when I gave birth, but also like, can I just say like, I carried the unordered pages of this book, but it was longer. It was like 200 pages for a long time, for a year and a half, because I knew I needed to do something with it, but I couldn't all throughout the pregnancy, before the pregnancy, during the pregnancy, only after I gave birth, maybe two months after I left the baby with my parents, because I was back home in California, I drove up to the childhood library that raised me, took up a conference room, much grimier than I remember. <laughs> And I, I ordered it and I shed a lot. I shed so much visual work, actually. Like, yeah, I did all this visual work, but like it didn't belong. Only certain bits belonged, right? And I love just thinking about like, oh no, just this one, just this whisper. I don't know why I brought that up. Oh, but it was something about now being a mother. This is it, the doubling. Now being a mother really, I mean, this is so cliche, but it's also the truth. It really transforms how I view my mother and how I think about maternal lineage. And it really changed all the mother daughter parts in the manuscript. And actually, so there were slight revisions that were made now that I was a mother, my in real life, having a child, having a daughter, like closed a loop in various ways in some of the poems where previously they were, they ended with a kind of like open unresolved, which is fine too, for it to be unresolved. But the, the act of like becoming a mother really changed the manuscript, right? So I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying other than like, <laughs> this is like a living document, <laughs> which changed as my life changed. And it's also perhaps, I don't know, an artifact of, of like incorrect Vietnamese language from a person in the diaspora. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> sort of the same impulse to, to, invite Cindy in and invite this ethnographic work in to your voice in a way. Um, I wanted to talk about 
or talk more about the non-human in your work, which is prominent from the beginning uh, in the first book. The first book with eels and bees in particular, bees where your brother had complained of hearing a buzzing in the walls, one that was never engaged with seriously on its own terms as, as something that could actually have existed outside of his head. Um, that is until after he died and your parents discovered thousands of dead bees in the attic. Um, I love the cover of the new book with the two bees on the flower, which have always, or at least originally I was thinking about them as you and your brother, mm. but I suppose they could be you and your mother, but either not to say, I mean, I'm presuming they're, they're you and someone, which isn't total, a totally a huge leap on my part. But either way, there's a shift to a sense, I think, of presence and engagement to these creatures side by side, collecting pollen together versus the cover of Ghost of, which has this striking image of the shadow cast by an absent body. But both books have this deep engagement with the non-human to great effect. Ghost of opens with a declarative statement. There is no ecologically safe way to mourn. And then it mentions plants that continue to secrete pollen after the petals are gone. And this book opens with an uncaptioned picture of what looks like a hedge. And I'm, I'm still working from the galleys, so the reproduction isn't great, but it seems like if you look hard enough, there are silhouettes of people, but the absences have been overgrown with the presence of plants. And I wondered if there's anything you want to say about this opening and this photo, and also about the notion, the opening of the first book, of there being no ecologically safe way to mourn. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked this, because I love talking about this, and I had forgotten. So the first line from Ghost of really came from a dive into like funereal practices. There's no good option. Like, you know, if you're cremated, like think about all the, the fumes, right, from the crematorium. And then if you're buried, there's just like the wood, it's just land. There's really no ecologically sound way to, to die. You know, I guess maybe if we like had a very specific acid dissolve our body. I don't know. Like, truly, I don't, I couldn't figure it out. But that's like something you see in a movie or a show, right? So I was just thinking about the quandary of that, especially since we cannot ignore how climate has been shifting, even since in the years since we last, like we first corresponded, right? And that, that theme is not necessarily forefront in my work, but I think about it constantly. And I think I am documenting it through the non-human. I'm paying attention to the non-human to reveal what might be aberrant within the family structure right? Because I'm not, I'm not really talking so much about like nationally, but I'm, I'm looking very kind of microscopically at a family and the ways in which animals and, and non-human um, reveal that to me. So to then jump to root fractures, well, first, can I talk about the title, the, the cover? It's funny that you, you mentioned, you, you thought of it as like, you read the bees as my brother and I, I had never thought about that. Honestly, I was just like two bees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like in part, because like, and now no longer want any entity to be alone. Mm. Like, you know, so like actually even in my image text work within Root Fractures, 
where previously I might have had a child's body by itself in a page, I create a doubling of that body. And I refuse to, to leave anybody alone, actually, because I don't like that isolation feel on the page. And even, I think, the, the singular child with the ghost remnant of, of the brother, that's even too lonely. So, so that was a very conscious decision on my part. So love, of course, that there were two bees. But I also love that the bees are just kind of like alongside with, you know, they're not doing anything with each other. They're just, they're doing what they're supposed to. Um, and I don't know why, but like, I love that they're blue, mm. you know? Um, okay. So the image that opens root fractures, this is from a kind of ritualistic practice, which is for a long time, for several years, I don't do this anymore, but for several years on my brother's death anniversary during my 15 days of writing, I would always at some point begin a ritual of like, how do I return to the archive? And what am I going to do with the archive? Or how am I going to witness or behold or engage with the archive? And this one particular year, I was like, well, radical empathy, what if I try to do what my brother did, but now actually it's like less about like self erasure from the family, but it's more like, well, we're all going to die. So we're not going to be in this picture. Like we're not going to be in this landscape anymore. And this is actually the picture is the yard of my paternal grandparents' house. And I think in Pasadena, old Pasadena. And of course, I don't know if I, they must've done this, but they planted bamboo. <laughs> And for those who know anything about bamboo, if you plant bamboo, it's quite noxious and it overtakes a yard. It overtakes the space. So there's that. So like, even if we're all gone and dead, bamboo is going to remain and thrive. So part of the radical empathy was like in Photoshop, which I don't really have Photoshop skills, but I knew how to use the lasso tool. And I was tracing around my father, my mother, my sister, myself. And also even like the cutout of my brother, right? Like let's remove the whole family because in a certain number of years, nobody's going to know that we ever existed, right? And there was something calming in that, like death equalizes us all, <laughs> regardless of how much we suffered and toiled. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's actually really sad. Um, and I thought that once I traced over our bodies, if I hit delete, it would just create a, a white space, kind of like when my brother cut himself out, except I don't know how Photoshop works. I guess it's so smart that it just decided to fill in like wallpaper, it, like decide to fill in with what would be there, which is the bamboo. And it was so uncanny actually, because you can kind of see the edges of where the bodies had been, but it's also like it's a magical illusion and we disappeared on the page. And here's this other thing that I'm constantly chasing when I'm writing is how to create or make conditions for happy accidents to happen, right? Like I couldn't, I couldn't have willed this, this, this image into existence, but I knew that I wanted to do something and intimately trace the bodies and remove them from time. And I loved that bamboo remains, right? That felt like a metaphor that was really apt that I, I couldn't, I couldn't have imagined. I mean, thinking all the time about flora and fauna and how they thrive or don't thrive and how they engage with other species um, and when it's detrimental, of course. Those are all like, what's the word I wanna use here? Like perhaps less loaded or emotional ways of thinking about family systems, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is why that occurs throughout my work as well, because I can't always constantly look at family. It's too depressing sometimes. Well, staying on this, this focus on the non-human, I wanted to also bring up the presence or the role of water. Um, in the first book, we have the poetic series Gyotaku, which is a Japanese tradition of fish prints that predates photography, and it was used by Japanese fishermen to document their catches. But it's a technique that both captures something from the fish, but is also inherently partial. So it's a fragment suggesting the whole. And I also think of the line in Ghost of, uncontained, even water abandons itself, which of course makes me think of form and how form, finding a form and writing with a form was essential for you in accessing your feelings. In that spirit, I wanted to juxtapose something that Toni Morrison says about rivers and something that you say or have said about rivers. This is Toni Morrison. You know, they straightened out the Mississippi River in places to make room for houses and livable acreage. Occasionally, the river floods these places. Floods is the word they use, but in fact, it is not flooding, it is remembering remembering where it used to be. All water has a perfect memory and is forever trying to get back to where it was. Writers are like that. Remember where we were, that valley we ran through, what the banks were like, the light that was there, and the route back to our original place. It is emotional memory, what the nerves and the skin remember, as well as how it appeared and a rush of imagination is our flooding. And that made me think of something you wrote as part of a meditation on a poem by Mark Levine called I Keep Getting Things Wrong. Here are three little excerpts of that meditation by you. The particulars of my grief manifested as uncertainty about the world, its facts, laws, seasons, and kindnesses. I did not trust my faculties because I felt too much and not at all simultaneously. In poetry, I had been ushered and now usher others to tell the truth even if it's a lie. A poem could be fluid like the river which carries all of us, all of everything, my history, your memories, the traumas we share and don't. In a river, the water will fill you in as you fill it with your own body. The legacy of war is like water, a man-made property of life, the cost of living. It took 27 years for my father to return to Saigon, and in that time, he built a home in California with tiles from his mother's house, with French doors, with bamboo. We cannot escape what we know. What I know, the ritual to feed our dead, what I don't know, why I eat the food left out for my dead brother. I do not know what my father ate on his flight, his first, out of Vietnam. But I do know how my father killed chickens for dinner. And then about your mother, you say, now she calls me to tell me her dreams about my brother, about me. We are in danger and she cannot find us. I do not tell her about my own dreams or how I feel I am my brother. 
identical to him somehow, that I am dead and here and moving toward death along with everyone else. I want to shake the legacy of dreams and history off of my life, but it isn't mine, this life. It is ours, this river. So I let it in and move in it. It's not really a question, but I wondered if this prompted any thoughts on your part. Thank you for for reading that and and sharing that. I don't even remember writing that, Mm. but it all feels true to how I feel about that work. I think really central to that poem that you mentioned and also to my comments on it were a kind of meditation on what I think I know about my family. And I love, love that Toni Morrison quote, all water is memory. Of course, humans would call it flooding as if it's where this is an inconvenience to us, right? But we were the ones trying to defy nature, trying to tame nature, trying to make nature more convenient for us. And I mean, she said it so well, and it made me think about how the act of a writer, so for me, the act of writing, like I can't tame or corral anything. So the water has always been flowing. Dow writes about this. She writes about how the word nuuk in Vietnamese is water, but also means country, which feels very different. <laughs> Those are two very different things to me, right? Because it's also like, you can refer to it as like the liquid of the ocean, but also the water that you drink, right? Um, but it's also your homeland, you know, which really equates land with water, like water being such an essential part of land and inseparable from it. And I think writing is like that. Like the terrain is also water, which means like it's hard to distinguish and you can't really parcel out what's going on. And so I think just having that acknowledgement of just like, okay, I know some of the physical properties of water and memories. And when I'm going to sit down to make something, how am I going to enter? At what part am I going to enter? Of course, that entering is never the beginning of anything, but just the beginning of that particular moment. And then it's part of my job as listener, sponge to the world, attentive to what I'm doing, to pay attention to what's happening before, during, and where it's going. I don't know if this makes any sense. There's this quote too, I forget who it is. Um, I'll look it up and then I'll share with you in a second. But there's this quote like a piece of ice on a hot stove, the poem arrives and it's melting, which is also water related. Mm. And I love that because it's letting me know, this is how I read it. Like you can't force the poem's path. <laughs> you just have to be patient and watch and see where it's going to melt. <laughs> Unless you're just like so spatially intelligent and you know the angles of your stove and how hot the stove is, then you could just map it all out. I'm sure they have like AI models to do that. But just in like a low tech kind of world, I feel like being a writer and working through memories is like truly just navigating water that you don't know. But one thing is for sure that I know now, it's safe water. Like you can't drown in that water. You can get emotionally overwhelmed, but then you could just very easily extract yourself out. 
But I'm just really so taken with with a Toni Morrison quote about how all water is memory. Well, could we hear two more short poems that are, I think, water, watery poems? Um, the first, Cape Disappointment, and uh, Selkie Weaning Young. Oh my gosh, yeah. Cape Disappointment. In rising, articulation of the spine leaves one open for a slitting. Daisies thread tread marks in the road. I cannot trace my body, so press it against grass. From afar, I recognize the shivering seal pup on the trail, dreading blood on the beak, pecking at a beached carcass, I stumble. Selkie weaning young. Finding her hide, we trailed fingers down, then against grains of fur, thrusting shoulders into its waxy skin. This is how she found us. The past draped about us like a cloak, hands twisting peach halves from a core. Her form in the sound, a pandan leaf peeking through milk. The only seals in Vietnam, American men with green faces. Listening to Diana Coy Win read from Root Fractures. So, thinking about form and your first book, you've talked about its triptych structure, something you liked because it was a prime number, that it was uneven but also stable, like a stool, that three is a number of stability. And now that your family no longer had three siblings. It was a stool with two legs. You also talked about being someone who worked in textiles and weaving and that you saw yourself weaving the strands of various poetic sequences in order to create the whole. When I read the new collection, it is less immediately obvious to me what the animating form is, if there is one. I do think of the repeated titles of so many of the poems, of repetition as form, that there are 15 poems all named Toi Moi, which I know I'm saying wrong, seven poems named Cape Disappointment, eight named Misinformation, four named Root Fractures, three named Beside, and this echoes against the transgenerational doublings and the doublings between the U.S. and Vietnam and the poems that echo doubling through the tug of war on two sides of a rope. But I wondered if you could speak to what you see as the form or forms that shape the book as a book, if it does have a scaffolding or one that you imagine like Gustav did. Yeah, it, it definitely doesn't have a form in the way that Gustav did. That one felt very inevitable for me, you know? Because um, I think I was working so strongly with thinking about what is present in the absence. And here, um, it's funny because like we only arrived at the cover after everything. But I really like that plant <laughs> that the bees are on. There's a kind of symmetry, geometry, 
it's a sphere globe kind of and I, I feel like that really captures seemingly identical facets but actually upon closer examination each play a different kind of part within that organism of the flower right and so I'm thinking of the form here then as less about what's present despite absence but more of just like what is the interconnectedness of things that feel like one entity? That was a really huge impulse for my wanting to separate all the parts of long poems because they are part of this like larger entanglement, you know? And so that's the form I think about. And also, I guess I haven't said this word yet, so it's now it's time for me to say it. But the mycelium, the mycorrhizal network, right, that really thread underneath forest floors. Um, mushrooms are just only the fruiting bodies, right, of that organism, of the fungi. But there's so much we don't see. There's so much that's happening through those threads under underground. And I love, which is to say, like, I don't think my book is like a mycelium by any means, but that's very much what I'm thinking about, how I'm sequencing and weaving and braiding, right? I'm, I'm forcing them to hold hands, you know, and they support each other in that way. I mean, I think they would have been fine in their own discreet. There would only be one cheap disappointment, right? There would only be one misinformation. But I like thinking them too as like cuttings. And they're, they're forming this kind of new way of being. It's diasporic, actually, David, you know, and on a real like basic level, I, I didn't know if I could do it. And I then I did it. And I was like, well, that's how I want it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's how I want it. And nobody said no yet. And I guess now it's too late to say no. <laughs> so I know you you wrote some of the pieces after the syntax of Jenny Erpenbeck's visitation. And I think of that book as a sort of book of haunting and ghostliness in the sense that we're following not a person, but we're following the history of a house over time. And so in a weird way, the living people who come and go in that house over a century are the ghosts, even when they're alive in a strange way. We're, we're outside of that. We even start for a brief moment in geological time, but it seems like an interesting, surprising influence. And I also just will say this, one of the big influences on my own writing is Elliot Weinberger. And mm. you mentioned him too, who's, who's also been on the show, but he's such a big influence and I never hear people talk about him. But talk to us about either, about, the, in particular, I'm thinking of, of Erpenbeck, how the syntax is playing a role in your writing within Root Fractures. Sure. And before I talk about Erpenbeck's influence on the syntax, I do want to pick up the thread about Elliot Weinberger, who is, who is, remains so deeply influential to like my poem logic, you know, like I love an elemental thing, just the piece on Wrens. I love that book so much. <laughs> like, talk <laughs> that's about the one I get. Wikipedia entry. <laughs> that's the one I, that's the book I give to everybody. Me too. Yeah. And it's one of those books where it's like I encountered it in a book, a used bookstore. You know, like it, it called to me. 
that that book in Yoko Tawada's book where Europe begins like nobody recommended it to me I just like and then I opened it and then I like devoured it and then I just you know like I just live it um but the way in which he's working through kind of anecdotal evidence I think I've kind of internalized or adopted that kind of logic and elliptical thinking into the like infrastructure of my poems so I love him. I actually haven't read his his latest. I think I missed it, and so I. I haven't read it. it yet either. Yeah, but you're maybe the first person. I know he has. A, I know he has a devoted readership, but I haven't been on the show with another writer where they're like, "Oh, oh. this is a big, important influence for me," and it's such a big one for me. It's like a. It's a very big, huge. It's hard for me to imagine writing into where I write without him having already sort of created created a space in that way. Did you tell him that when you when No, you this, that wasn't true. I didn't know. Oh. At the time, I was encountering him for the first time. So. Oh, my gosh. But I loved yes, having I think, him on. Yeah, yeah. the gateway, Elliot Weinberger, was an elemental thing. And then I went backwards. You know, like karmic traces, works on paper, all of it, all of it, all of it. I just ate it all up. And then I, like, reread them all. Because, like, then, you know, and then I was just, like, champing at the bit, <laughs> waiting for each new one, for sure. Yeah. And whenever I was like stuck, I would just turn to a random page in one of his books and it would just get me going. Yeah. I don't know. His work was really inspiring in that way. So if, if he gifted me or helped me along the journey in terms of a lyric logic, but also a different way of examining the non-human as a way to talk about the human, which I think he does really well. And he also just, his time travel is insane. But Jenny Erpenbeck, I cannot ever get out of the clutches of how seductive her sentences are. You know, I reread over and over the geologic epilogue to Visitation, and I never thought that I would care about geology, you know, or like a glacier moving and then forming a lake. And then the lake, like what? Talk about another form of time travel that she, the way in which she does time travel through kind of geographic, like, coordinates of place and like decenters human activity, including like the Holocaust, mm-hmm. you know, like I was so daft. I was like, by the time, like the Holocaust was happening, I was like, what, where are we? You know? And then I was like, Oh my God, well, the whole time, you know, like, and now when I go back, I'm like, of course, like you could see it coming, the anxiety, but just on a sentence level, it's so incantatory but also quite plain how long her sentences are and where they travel and where you get spit out on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Don't know how she does it. So I was like, how about I embark on that journey? And that literally was like when I started writing the very first purpose poem of Doi Moi. And it was this thing. And actually, I'm going to bring in Ted Chang, his short story, The Story of Your Life, right, which inspired the, the sci-fi film Arrival. Because when they talk about that alien language, they talk about that language as like, as it unfolds, it like foretells the future because the future is integral to the way in which like the alien syntax, I, I'm not explaining it properly, but it felt like that's what Urban Beck was doing for me. Like just trying to follow, like if I took the scaffolding of her syntax and then Mad Libs would try to fill it in, in doing that, even though I didn't have a topic, of course, I'm going to encounter my same topics, but it put me in a different place in relation to my obsessions. 
that I hadn't gone before because of her syntax. And so I kept going to random pages within Jenny's work to find new ways of seeing the topics that I've been wrestling with all this time, you know? Well, before we finish, I want to make sure we talk about the parts of the book that I think are harder to talk about. I want to talk about some of the more visually experimental poems. I'm going to preface it by quoting you from an interview at Asymptote when you say, when I was writing the poem for each of the spaces, whether it was the poem shard or the text as frame around the shard, I'd have to cut off the word wherever the white space was and then start across. I would have to leap over that white space. It's jarring to do that. You have the momentum of a sentence or the line or the thought or the image, and then because of this violence within the visual image, it cuts you off, and then you start again. For me, that enacts the process of grief. Loss, the sudden death of someone, is a jarring stump within your life, but you must continue. Life moves on. Then there's a sudden jolt of absence and then continuation. There are many poems in, in Root Fractures that I think are particularly hard to talk about, not only because they're so visual, but because they themselves are hard to read. Hard to read sometimes because they are faint, or hard to read because the words are competing with an image in the same space, or hard to read because each part of the poem is cut off by the edge of the form of the person there within. And so we get fragments of words, sometimes even because of a child standing in front of a parent, we get competing texts where the child's body is filled with a text and then the parent behind them is filled with a text and they're, they're competing uh, and overlapped. In these poems, it feels like the words are as important or perhaps more important as visual features as for their actual semantic meaning. But given how you've described the words being interrupted by the edges of the human forms that they encounter as being a way to emulate the process of grief. I wonder if you could choose one among so many that could be read out loud that you might read for us that might evoke this sense of interruption and restarting or fragmentation or, or partialness. Mm. Yeah, I just pulled one up. Uh, and honestly... I don't really know how I read it. I know how it, I talked it over with the engineers for the audiobook, mm. for especially for the visual ones, because they can do things where like they're just going to layer audio on top of each other, which I can't enact as one person live. But it'll be great in the audiobook. I know. I, I, I like. I don't know. Like I'm kind of excited, and also they were doing this thing where they're going to lower the volume for some of the grayscale. Um, and you didn't ask this, but I wanted to say this too, like. I wasn't trying to create text that was hard to read, but it was more of like sometimes text is just barely discernible, like almost in the periphery, even though we're looking straight at it. And that's not dissimilar to encountering Vietnamese language and also not being able to access. And so I think also there's, because of the nature of fragments and ghosts and memory and haunting and, and all of that stuff, things aren't always illuminated and easy to encounter and they weren't always easy for me 
to consider, to meditate. And it made sense for me to then kind of play with that too in, in the composition. So I wanted to read, uh, this makes sense because we've been talking about doubling. And also like, David, this has been so tremendous. I would wait another, I don't know how many years it's been. <laughs> six six years. eight years. This is sure. the record, six years. It is. Wow. Oh, yeah. To be honest, I don't even remember emailing you. But I. But of course, because I remember Diana Artirian told me to do all these things. And I'm like, this is <laughs> You know, I didn't know anything. <laughs> she seemed to know things. Yeah. And, I, and, and I'm really grateful for her, actually. Yeah. And and I can I just say, you're one of my favorite people to email correspond with. Just like your whole spirit of being really shines through. And that's so hard to capture in an email. You you are the rare person who does that. And the only other person that I feel this way, well, aside from Lucy Brock Bordeaux, but her her emails were kind of epic. But the only other living person is the bookseller, Rick Simonson. Oh, really? At, at Elliott Bay Books. Yeah. yeah. His emails also do that. It's a gift. I like study them to try to figure out like, <laughs> how can I also be like David and well, Rick? But when you sent me the uh, the picture of the wasp's nest... Was it at oh, Mc, yeah. was it at McDowell? Yeah, it was at McDowell. Yeah. Yeah. That we were exchanging our our photos of our various of the various insect architectures in our in our, our environments. I, I loved that. Did I send you the nighttime and the daytime? I think you just Did sent I? me one, but you're gonna send me the other one now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Cause I took initially I took a nighttime and I was like, that's weird. I need to send it okay. I didn't send you both. I gotta send you both because I think time like does something different. And it's a double. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, speaking of doubles, I'm going to read from the side, and this is on page 56, and I'm just going to read the mother body. Do you want to describe, you're saying you're just going to read the mother body, but maybe describe what everybody would see first. Yes, so when you look at this page, you see some figures, and it becomes clear that they're like different sized bodies. You have a taller figure, and then overlapping with that figure is a smaller one. So it's like a parent child. And then in the middle is a younger child. And then, so I'm going, I'm moving from left to right. And then on the very right-hand side is a parent body. And this is what I'm calling the mother body. And I believe, I believe embedded in this is probably the residue of the brother. And I think it's actually kind of captured and attached to the mother. So that will be that will be apparent when I when I read. But because I I no longer have the photograph. I'm not looking at the photograph. I don't remember, but it doesn't matter. I'm just kind of relaying here what I'm seeing on the page. So now I'm reading the mother body. And these are silhouettes, text as silhouette. This is not about my mother. This is about two mothers. One miscarries, suffering alone, her body, bodiless body. Her sister dies in childbirth, poisoned by amniotic fluid. Who gets to live? Who dies? Who breaks down the barrier? The medical term for injury is trauma. That stress, the event of the body. How does she bear it? Her son, his dead body. Perhaps as a final thought slash question, it actually has to do with Banu 
who mm. I, I thought was nice that you brought up. I kept thinking of her in preparing for today. Not that your work and hers isn't an entirely different reading experience and, and, and distinct from each other. It is, but I felt like this connection between the two of you and how you orient yourself to the making of work or how you think of the page and text in relationship to all sorts of other things that aren't text. And also thinking of this, what you just read about the mother, it's at another point in the book, you talk about schizophrenia and wondering about when in time it was triggered in certain family members in relationship to the war in Vietnam. It's a question that runs through Banu's work around the higher incidence of it in immigrant refugees. Um, and also the insistence, I think, more generally of a lack of separation between the body and its ailments and the geopolitical context that the body finds itself within, nor the body as separate from other non-human animals. I think of the lines in one of your poems in this regard, and this is, this is you speaking about how long your mother has been gone from Vietnam, where you say, I have been alive for nearly as long as she has been gone, and it has been that long since I left her body. How many eggs remain? Eggs I still carry. Eggs my mother carried in carrying me along. I also think of Banu's use of performance and ritual and ritualized spaces as part of the poem making and part of the poems and the way you've used video and food and coffins as ritual. But perhaps most notably how she talks about performance as a reversal and then an elaboration, which feels like a, a kindred notion to your notion of repetition, but with deviation. So as a final question, I would ask you, now that you've created this repetition with a deviation, with root fractures, the second book that both extends and extends from and away, and yet also somehow is returning and rooting deeper, where does the bringing of this to fruition place you now in your art-making practice? Do you have a sense of your next reversal and elaboration of the next mm. of the next window that is also a mirror? Oh, this question. I had no idea where you were going, but of course we would end with this question. Oh, David, I'm going to miss your questions, but I get to listen to you ask other people questions. So that's the beauty of the podcast. Um, I have, I was going to say I have no idea, but I do have some idea. I have like, 3% idea. Because when I was at McDowell in October, I was taking a break from this prose project I've been doing, which is kind of another constellation. It's not autofiction, but it's a ghost story and it's autobiographical, but it's taking inspiration from the process of filmmaker Lee Isaac Chung, who wrote Minari, where he was just working through, he wrote out a hundred memories and then from there found a thread, right? And that's how like he composed the film, which I love because it's kind of elliptically moving. So I've, I've been working on that prose project, perhaps no surprise, inspired by the prose work that began in root fractures. I just can't get away from the sentence. And I just wanted to see what happened if I kept doing more sentences in prose form with a different way of looking at family. 
But the new poems that I started, which I didn't realize I was going to write poems, I've been looking at fathers and daughters. So if Root Fractures is looking kind of mostly at mother and daughter, mother and child, mother and children, I've been thinking about fathers. Um, I don't know if I recommend this, but I can't help it. It already happened. I had some, I continued my therapy appointments during my time at McDowell. I was only there 15 days, <laughs> but I had, I had two really powerful therapy sessions where I don't know what happened, but like my body came time and it, it, came, it arrived at these understandings about my own father. And I felt tremendous grief in, in making the realizations that I did. My father is still alive. But I, I realize now, like perhaps I've been projecting a version of my father all this time. And so it was really painful to acknowledge that. It's still even painful for me now to say it because I'm like, that's not true. You know, there's a kind of denial about it. So I've been working through the memories of my father. And also my father, by the way, is the one who took all these photographs, who set up the tripod, who took all the home videos. So he's also been the kind of documentary filmmaker, accidentally or not, cinematographer. And so I've just, I've been thinking about fathers, you know, and I'm also observing my my spouse with our child, and how different that is, how I remember, but also how similar, you know? And so that's what I've been working on. And there's, and they're, so far, they're kind of longer, more like lyric essay kind of type. So kind of continuing that thread from, from root fractures. But we'll see. We'll see. You know, like, I don't know what else is going to emerge. It might take me another, you know, six years to unearth and figure out what that is going on. And the, the prose project I'm working on might never see daylight. And I'm okay with that, too. You know, like, I'm just trying to put it down on the page. And I think maybe this year... I think it has to be this year. Like I need to figure out, I need to begin to sequence it to figure out what to, to cut and what else to introduce. But I kind of hit a juicy part actually with a non-familial member, but a, another Vietnamese American person that I actually reconnected with in real life. And so that made its way into the project. And he has memories of my family and my house, the house that I grew up in that I don't, I barely remember him. So like I'm folding all that, which is to say like, what is the American dream to children and Vietnamese refugees? I think perhaps is another way. Wow, that was a weird way for me to describe two different projects. But I guess now when I think about it, more recently I've been working through the dreams, behaviors, and thoughts of like Vietnamese men in America. Mm. Um, and I end on one thing. When Ghost stuff came out, Ocean Phone messaged me and mentioned to me, maybe as if in lament, but like acknowledged how we both had to turn to thinking about Vietnamese men, you know, because like there's a lot of thinking and talking through like mothers. Um, and I didn't remember that message that he wrote me all those years ago until right now. Like perhaps it was just always there in the back of my mind, right? It is time for me to turn to the father. And I don't know what else is going to, this is actually a new territory that's scary for me because I didn't think of him as a villain. And maybe you don't have to be a villain to have done harm. So yeah. that's painful. Thank you, Diana. Yeah, thank you, David. I'm just really floored by this conversation. 
It's better than I could even in all of these six years of anticipation. It exceeded my capacity for imagination. You know, it's funny when it became apparent to me, this is a happy part, but when it became apparent to me, like how much you have watched and read in preparation, I was like, oh, everything I was about to say, David has heard already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David doesn't even need me here. I'm going to come up with new answers. <laughs> We've been talking today to Diana Coywin, the author most recently of Root Fractures. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neyman, your host. Today's program is recorded at the Volunteer Powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Diana Coywin's work at dianacoywin.com. For the bonus audio archive, Diana contributes a reading from the body-shaped poems that didn't make the final book, poems that now haunt the book from an elsewhere. These join supplemental readings by so many of our past guests, long-form interviews with translators, some craft talks, and more. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives supplementary resources with each conversation of the things I discovered while preparing for it things referenced during it, and the places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, or a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jane Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Pass Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Rabins, for making the intro and the outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film, at aliciajo.com, A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com. 